Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit AbyssBattery.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. We've got some questions and answers today, but also a book recommendation. I want to start off with that right away because a lot of the patrons have been asking, what are some of the great books I've been reading? I've reread this one by Jim Reardon. Alaska's Wolfman is a biography of Frank Glazer, who was quite the pioneer back in the day up in Alaska. He went up there in 1915, and he hunted for road crews. was a market hunter back when that was still legal. And then he was hired by Fish and Game to take care of some wolf problems. And it's a really fascinating story to see the changes. Because when he first got up there in 1915, 16, 17, around in there, hardly ever saw a wolf. And then they really increased and the caribou numbers were through the roof. And then they plummeted and then the ups and downs. And it's just really fascinating reading. I recommend that. Alaska's Wolfman by Jim Reed. Now, here is a question by uh, one of my patrons on Patreon, and his name is Austin, and he says, Hey, Ron, after the content that I've received from you, I've decided that you've earned a well-deserved payday from me. (laughs) So he joined Patreon. I really appreciate that, Austin. Uh, Our Patreons really help out with their contributions. If you're interested in joining us on Patreon, just go to patreon.com, Ron Spomer Outdoors, get all the details there. Uh, We'll put a link here with this. Um, I guess we can't do that on a podcast. I'm not sure what my crew will do, but you can find me if you want to on Patreon, and we really appreciate this support. So uh, what does Austin have to say here? He says, hey, I have a suggestion, more a question on a topic. I believe that calibers dictated by the weight of the animals is the wrong way to determine the proper caliber. Because really, people aren't shooting 800 pounds worth of bear. They're shooting a small target arrow of an animal. um, And I believe it should be measured broadside rather than lengthwise through the animal. So therefore, wouldn't animal density be a more appropriate formula than weight? For instance, different animals have more fat, some have more muscle, some have denser or thicker bones than others. Wouldn't using the penetrating and destructive capabilities of a bullet entering the body and hitting the vitals be better suited based off of density and mass of the target animal, more important than basing it off of the weight? 
for selecting your suitable caliber cartridge. Is my train of thought flawed? And if so, why? Sorry for the long-winded message. <laughs> Always best regards. Thanks for the work you do. Well, thank you, Austin. No, that is, that's a good question. And I think the easy answer here, Austin, is that weight of the animal was the easiest way for the cartridge companies to really come up with these, these numbers. And you're probably familiar with seeing these on charts and especially ammo boxes. You know, they will say that this particular cartridge and bullet are suitable for elk-sized animals or deer's whitetail-sized animals or bears or something like that. So they'll categorize them roughly by size. But Austin is, is certainly right. You know, there are some animals that were pretty thin, like even white-tailed deer, even a big white-tailed deer, if you really consider the distance from one shoulder through the other, it isn't nearly as significant as the difference in, say, a hog, which has a lot more cartilage, perhaps, in that infamous shield over its chest and that sort of thing. But it's just too many, I think, to narrow that down. So I don't know that we will ever get a different um, way of judging the appropriate cartridge. I think we're probably doing as well as we can do on this. You just need to consider the general overall size and toughness of that animal. And that's something else you can't measure is it's infamous durability. You know, some animals they say are really, <laughs> really pretty wimpy. And they, uh, well, eland is an example. Every time I hunt eland in Africa, the uh, PHs say, just get a, a bullet in there and it'll probably do the job. They're not real tough. Whereas an oryx is, in, is just famous for being extremely durable and hard to put down. Similar thing with elk in this country versus moose. I have found moose to give it up pretty quickly, whereas elk, they can keep going if you get them excited and they want to. So good question, though, Austin. I don't think there's a real easy answer. All right, here's a question I got from John. Hey, for lefty shooters. Oh, this is an answer, guys. We're always getting questions about left-handed rifles. For all lefty shooters, Savage is the king for options. Ruger and others do have some, but as far as shotguns go with a Mossberg 500 or a Browning BPS, the Tang safety works well. Some double barrels also have a Tang safety. Now, I'm a forced softpaw, have very limited vision in my right eye, but I'm right-handed. One bonus to consider when bird hunting, you can take the right side and your buddy the left and you'll have a more natural swing to the outside that way. Yeah, that's a great way to do it if you and a buddy are shooting opposite hands set up properly and then you're not crossing each other and you're getting the best option on your crossing shots all right thanks for that john so folks looking for left-handed savage has a lot of bold action rifles in left hand here is one from thunder bumper let's see what he has to say hey ron lots of good content as usual but for us backcountry hunters who are sometimes solo and eight miles plus in the backcountry a hunting knife has to double as a survival knife. Uh, this is referencing video we did on knives on my regular channel, Ron Spomer Outdoors. I'd be interested in your take on a backcountry hunting knife that you turn that gives you confidence when the stuff hits the fan. <laughs> For me, I carry a Falkniven item. Never heard of that. I-D-U-N. Falkniven item. A medium-sized fixed blade, heavy-duty, drop point, four-inch blade with a laminated VG-10 steel. Woo. It's my primary survival knife backup processor along with a Benchmade Hidden Canyon Hunter. It's small, thin, fixed blade, drop point, 2.8 inch blade with S90 V steel. That's my size. I like a two and a half to a three inch blade for doing my gutting and field work. 
That was my primary Skinner processor and a backup general purpose blade. I have processed many elk, deer, antelope and with both, but I'd like uh, you. I find that the smaller knife is the best for processing scenarios, but in sketchy situations, I have great confidence in that fixed blade knife. It does a good enough job processing game to fill both roles effectively. So I'm interested in your approach to balancing both survival, general camp duties, and game processing in the deep backcountry. Good point, Thunder Bumper. I had not considered that in my presentation on knives. I was just thinking about field dressing an animal and getting the meat packed out and all that good stuff. Um, you know, the interesting thing, for all the backcountry hunting and roaming that I've done over the years, and I've gone good 20, 30 miles back from the trailheads and stuff and stayed out for a couple of weeks at a time, I have never felt that I needed a survival knife. I've always gotten by with pretty much my standard gutting knife, my field knife, whether it is a fixed blade or a folder. But I can see the advantage if you really had to do some heavy-duty cutting and or almost semi-chopping with a knife, cutting pegs or firewood or something. But I generally just break my firewood or find smaller pieces, and I just haven't found a lot of need for a survival type knife in any of the situations that I've been in. I usually have all my survival gear on my back. So I've got a tent, a gas stove, some extra fuel, sleeping bag, sleeping pad. And I really don't have a need to be making primitive shelters and the sort of thing that would call for an axe or a bigger Bowie style knife. So that might be a false <laughs> uh, consideration on my part, maybe. And if you lose your pack, there's a fire, you lose everything, and you really have to be wilderness man, Ronyel Boone, if you will. I would like a big, a bit heavier knife. So I think you're onto it here, Thunder Bumper. And that is not a bad idea. Four-inch blade, what are we looking at about that? Maybe a five-inch blade, but what, as you said, heavy and fixed, and I'd have a full tang. Um, that knife is going to be tough, and you're going to be able to do some really hard work with it, a little bit of chopping even. That might be a, a good option. And if you can do your basic field skinning and dressing of your animal with it, not a bad way to go. So, yeah, you guys might want to think about that. Sounds like a pretty heavy affair, but I can see where it would be useful in a survival situation. Eating better is easy with Factors delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important 
like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. All right. Here's one from someone called Out There. Out There says, hey, a slight correction here, cowboy. Uh, 4440 was actually released in 1873, not 1866, as you claim. You should know this stuff instead of guessing. How hard can it be? B spelled the letter B with a question mark. Well, a snarky answer might be um, about as hard as spelling B with an E on it. <laughs> but I get your point out there. Um, hey, sometimes I just get all my dates and numbers and ballistics numbers mixed up. I just don't automatically pull them up. Um, maybe I'm just dumber than the average bear, but hey, cut me a little slack here. I'm trying my best, but I appreciate the correction. Yes, Winchester's 4440 cartridge came out in 1873 with the model 1873 upgraded lever action rifle. That became the standard sort of gun that won the West rifle. Uh, and it was the first one to be shooting a center fire cartridge. Prior to that, the 44 Henry Flat was a rimfire cartridge in the 1866, the Yellow Boy Winchester rifle. And that had a brass receiver. The 1873 was a little bit stronger, had a steel receiver or at least an iron receiver. And uh, that sort of started the process toward better and better lever action rifles. So, yeah, that's when that one came out. Thanks for the correction there out there. <laughs> Now, let's see what the, the gang has for me here. If I can get this computer up. Oh, yeah. Lots of questions and stuff. This is from someone named No or Noy, N-O-E. Uh, says he's from Denmark. Hi, Ron. He has a born-again hunter after a 25-year break. <laughs> Welcome back, sir. I really enjoy your podcast, and they are a great source of knowledge and entertainment on my daily walks in the forest. I live in Denmark, and listening to you, I understand that there are some great differences between North American and European hunting. What do you think are some of the greatest differences between Europe and the U.S. in regards to hunting, and what European tradition would you like to see the U.S. adopt? P.S. The 308 is the greatest all-round cartridge ever. <laughs> the little wink. <laughs> He's just digging me because I'm always dissing the 308 Winchester. Kind regards, no. Hey, I hope I pronounced your name right, no. Um, good question. I am not all that familiar with European hunters. I've hunted in Austria. I've hunted in some former Russian um, protectorates or states or whatever they were called. Um, let me think. Did I hunt in France? No, I'm going to be going to France here, I hope, next year. At any rate, Austria. And I think that's about it. So I don't have that much experience, but I have visited with friends who have hunted there. And the one thing that I really like is this Germanic tradition of honoring the animal with the last bite. Um, and I guess a lot of European countries have these traditions of honoring the animal uh, in Czechoslovakia and maybe in Hungary. I've seen where they lay out all the game and they blow trumpets and they have a respect ceremony for them afterward. It's really pretty nice. I like that whole system. Um, and the other thing I like about Germany is the Jägermeister, where you actually can study to become uh, a master hunter. Uh, I like the U.S. system of allowing everyone to follow his natural urgings and be a hunter without requiring the state to certify anyone for the process. But I can also see some value 
in at least offering a voluntary program in which you can study and learn and maybe even apprentice to become an accomplished hunter. I think that would take care of a lot of problems that we sometimes have here with hunters who really didn't have good mentors and good training and they sort of stumble their way through and it's just too easy to make mistakes and or be a little bit unsafe in your gun handling. I was fortunate to get hunter training when I was 13 years old. Back in those days, you had to pass a hunter safety course. I believe it was an NRA course and most of the state fish and game agencies adopted it and required young people to pass this basic test in firearms knowledge and manipulation and just understanding the game laws and all the rest of the things. I think it's an excellent program. So uh, I do like those, those two traditions from Europe and I'd like to see more of that over here. So thanks for bringing that up, Noah. Hey, and thanks for watching and listening. We really appreciate it. Here is Richard from Idaho. My golly, he could be right outside right now. What do you have going here, Richard? Hello, Ron. Several years ago, I took a pronghorn with my Ruger M77 Mark II 30-06. Projectile was 165 grain Nosler ballistic tip factory load. The range was about 350 yards. One shot kill. Bingo. Good job there. That's what you're after, Richard. Now, I'm writing because of what I saw while field dressing that animal. There was far more damage to the vascular system than I had ever seen or have ever seen since. What I saw appeared to be separate from any damage from the permanent and temporary wound channel. So, I've heard there's this theory that may help explain this damage that I saw, and I'd like your opinion on it. The theory suggests that if the bullet strikes the animal's heart where a large blood vessel or artery at the precise moment of maximum blood pressure during the heartbeat, then additional damage is possible via ruptured blood vessels throughout the body of the animal. Very curious about your thoughts or experience with this. Thanks, Richard. Yeah, Richard, good point. And I have covered this before, and there has been some research that indicates this is one of the things that happens for the mysterious and unpredictable hydrostatic shock kill from a bullet. High-velocity bullets, and the animal dies just like that from shock. Does it actually happen? Plenty of debate about that, but when it does, the question is, is it because of what you just said? Systolic pressure of the heart is maximum. When the heart beats and compresses, the blood pressure is at its peak. If the bullet just happens to land at that precise split second, it emphasizes that. It augments the pressure and that can cause essentially a stroke. A blood vessel or an artery blows out in the brain and the animal is dead instantly. Does this then translate to general bloodshot throughout the animal? I don't think it does. Um, I have not seen that. And one of the real surprise things for me has seeing animals that were very cleanly shot uh, without striking any major bones that would create a lot of tissue damage extraneous to the uh, wound channel, as you saw. And yet you're getting bloodshot meat far, far away from that area and go, wait a minute, the bullet wasn't all that fast. It was probably only going... 2,500 feet per second. It wasn't like a hyper magnum. What's going on? Now, the strangest thing I ever saw was my recent bow kill. I was hunting in Kansas with big Kansas outfitters, big Kansas whitetails. Excellent operation over there. And I got a beautiful opportunity on a big whitetail buck with an arrow. I was using a crossbow, 10 point crossbow, and 
<laughs> this buck came within 20 yards and I just made a perfect shot thanks to that bow and that whole setup. But that buck looked like it'd been shot with about four 257 Weatherby Magnums at 20 yards. I mean, there was damage everywhere. And it was just an arrow with a broadhead going through. Here's what we figured out. Big Kansas and I got to thinking about it. The buck took the shot and ran off as arrow shot bucks often do and bullet shot bucks as well. He ran off about 100, 125 yards and expired. No big deal. The running is what did the bloodshot meet, I think. The heart is still beating, but the arteries are cut and that blood is pumping through those cut arteries and it gets in between the meat wherever there's leakage from a cut. And I think that's pumping that blood throughout the system. And it looks like it's gunshot or bloodshot meat, but it's just really blood flowing. And then the running of the energy of that animal, the muscles moving is what's pumping it through the system. And I think that's what happens with a lot of our bullet shot animals. I've seen it on too many animals in which the bullet really didn't seem to do that much damage. And we didn't have that hyper velocity going on. So I think that's what's happening. It's that you're cutting those arteries and blood vessels, and then the animal runs and pumps it through its system. And you can see some horrendous damage. Now, the cool thing about this, or I don't know if it's cool, but worth knowing is that meat is not necessarily bad. If you scrape away some of that blood, you'll find out it's between the muscle groups rather than throughout all the muscles. The ones that I've seen in which the blood seems to have permeated into the very tissues of the muscle itself does seem to be pressure from the bullet strike. Otherwise, it's just this leakage in between. So wherever there's a significant artery or blood vessel that is broken and can leak into the meat and in between the different muscle groups, I think that's where you see a lot of that. And you can just scrape that away and the meat beneath that is, is in excellent condition. So don't think you have to throw that away because it's bloodshot. Do a careful search and I think you'll find there's some really good meat left there. But that is a good point, Richard. Thanks for bringing it up. All right, here from Alaska is Ron. Got a great first name, Ron. <laughs> hey, uh, Ron, I really enjoy your podcast. Now, I'm planning to convert my Ruger 77 from a 280 Remington to a 280 AI, the Ackley Improved version. I'm wondering what I'll gain with only a 22-inch barrel. I reload, so I'm hoping to get better case life. I have some other things I'd like to hear about you, what your thoughts on this are, but for now, I'm going to do some more research on the subject. Yeah, do your research, and I think what you're going to find out is that you will probably pick up 50 to 100 feet per second more velocity, even with that 22-inch barrel. Obviously, you would get more with a 24-inch barrel in either one, and you'd get even more velocity with a 26-inch barrel and more with a 28-inch barrel, but who wants to drag that around in the woods? So <laughs> I think you're going to be pretty happy with what you pick up there, but that's not the main reason to go with an AI, and I think you are on it. It's the case life if you're a hand loader. By having the straighter walls and the 40-degree shoulder, you reduce the amount of trimming to the neck that is needed to be done. So you're going to get a longer case life, probably two to three at least more loadings out of each case, depending on the pressures that you're putting out there. But I think you're going to enjoy that feature. That is one of the major benefits of all the Ackley Improved cartridges. They all have the 40-degree shoulder, which is really flat, and that reduces the flow of the brass. So I think you're going to like that. 
All right, from Ohio, someone named Craig asks me, hey, recently I watched your YouTube channel on the 264 Winchester. I purchased a 264 Win Mag rifle several years back. I enjoyed what you had to say about the cartridge. About the bullets, I cannot say about this double die. What? I cannot say about the double diameters of the slugs. When I got the rifle, I did get several old boxes of Winchester and Remington ammo. All were the same weight, but the Winchesters did not do too bad. I was sure the gun could do better, so I shot the Remington ammo. It was louder, and the grouping was much larger. So I took the ammo home, the ammo home and I checked both bullets. The Winchester bullet was 0.264 inch in diameter. That's what it's supposed to be. The Remington bullets were 0.268 inch. I pulled all the remaining 268 slugs. I betted the rifle, I loaded all the shells with 264 bullets, and good accuracy was obtained. As you mentioned, new slow-burning powders helped. Keep up the good work with your videos. I have a 6.5 Creedmoor too. Both 6.5s are very good hunting rifles. Wow. You know, that reminds me. Years ago, I heard about this 268 bullet thing in a uh, 264. And what is going on with that? And I did some research and Hornady was actually building a 0.268 inch diameter bullet. Why? Because all of the 6.5s, to my knowledge, are using 0.264. That's your standard bullet dimension. Turns out the Italian military cartridge, the two, uh, the 6.5 Carcano, Carcano, I'm not sure how they pronounce it, that thing used a 0.268 inch bullet. Now you look at the SAMI specs for the 264 Winchester, and I would guess these are the same for all of our other 6.5s. The barrel, nominal diameter of your barrel before the grooves, these would be the lands, is 0.256. And this is something we need to realize about all of our cartridges. These are nominal dimensions, not absolutes. And the bore size is usually a little bit smaller than advertised. So the 30 calibers aren't going to be precisely 30. They're going to be a little bit tighter than that. The 7s, the 6s, all of them. And then your bullets, of course, are a little bit wider to fit down into the grooves. The groove dimensions are different from the lands and all the rest of it. Your bullets are being Scraped as they go down that bore. It, it's a tight fit. It has to be a tight fit in order for the gases to drive the bullet out. Otherwise, the gases would just jet around the bullets and you wouldn't get your velocity. But a 268 in a 264 might be pushing the envelope a little bit, especially because those lands are 256 and not 264. So just think about that. The bore diameter is 0.256 inch and the bullet is is 2.64 so that it can reach the bottom of the grooves and lock in that seal. You're stripping a lot of that bullet going down the barrel. And this, of course, is why we see copper fouling, gilding metal jacket fouling, or if you have an all lead bullet, lead fouling. Just has, that's the way it has to work, guys. But yeah, that was a new one on me, the 268. And I had no idea that Remington or anyone else actually loaded a 0.26 inch diameter bullet in the 264 Win Mag. Now, obviously that wasn't blowing up rifles or they wouldn't have been selling that ammunition back in the 60s and 70s or whenever you got that particular load. Um, but still, I don't know that I'd want to mess around with it either. That seems like it's getting a little bit too much in bullet diameter. So gosh, yeah, it pays to measure some of this stuff sometimes. But in general, if the factories are putting this stuff out, they're coming within the tolerances allowed by SAMI. And there's always a, 
a, a variation here. Your tolerances are allowed so many hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of an inch one way or another. Um, but we're depending on them to do it right. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. That's mintmobile.com waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. All right. Thanks for that information. I'm going to be measuring some of my 6.5s from here on out just to satisfy my own curiosity, I think. Here's someone from Australia, David. Hey, Ron, I appreciate your show. I shoot in ranges at Winter Haven, Florida in the USA. Huh. It's a different world over there. Yep, I guess it would be. Hey, a grandson, 22 years old, responsible and sensible. What caliber should I start him off with? I shoot a 22 Browning Buckmark, a Glock 17A9 millimeter, a 22 CZ long rifle, a Tika Hunter in a 222, second one I've had, uh, a Hawa TPS X243, a 224 Valkyrie, a 7 millimeter PRC, and also a 35 Whalen. I love it. Hey, thanks for uh, Isaac. Was what? Thinking for Isaac. Oh, that must be his grandson. I'm thinking for Isaac would be a Tika. In two two three, what do you think? I reload all of the above. I love that part. The challenge of being able to get the perfect bullet to go where you want to. Okay, yeah, David, he loves it. All right, what do I think? Gosh, David, I don't know. You seem to know plenty about cartridges and hunting and shooting, and I'm sure you do a lot of it over there. You're going to have a better idea of what's suitable for your grandson than I would. But were it my grandson, I would definitely start him off on a twenty two rimfire then move him up to the 223 for the center fires. He's going to be more surprised by the bang than he is the recoil. Uh, but 223 hardly has any recoil. Give him good hearing protection. And I don't think you're going to have any chance of a flinch issue with a 223. Then you can move up to your 243 and on up the line like that. That's the way I like to do it. I found it works the best. So give that a try. Uh, I'm not sure what animals you're going to be hunting with it or if you're just going to be target shooting to get him started. But boy, that's a good way to go. Now, David has, it looks like a PS here. Article on the water buffalo. Yes, some water buffalo um, are tough dudes. Sambar deer, the best eating. The one found halfway up in the state of New South Wales, usually by Victoria. It's hard to stalk and it's a smart animal. For five years, I've done feral control. Uh, shooting a 223. Pigs, goats, donkeys, kangaroos, and some dogs. Also using a Jet Ranger 3, a 223, 
<laughs> oh my goodness. Folks cannot appreciate what hogs and kangaroos do to sorghum crops when viewed from the ground. The saddest thing ever is the donkey over in Western Australia. Huh. The donkeys pull a whole plant out. Grass, weeds, pull it out and cause erosion when it rains. Wow. Yeah, this is some animal damage control this gentleman is involved in because these are all invasive species in Australia. And they are, I guess, creating, well, the kind of damage we get over here with feral pigs. These animals have no natural predators and they just run rampant and destroy the vegetation. They destroy the ground, they cause erosion, and they have to be taken care of. So a lot of Australians are, they're pretty efficient in their cartridge use because they're shooting so many. I was over there once and one of the locals was buying his ammunition by the case. and would last about a month because they had so many of these problem animals that they had to take care of. And they are actually hired on these big ranches to take the, to reduce the damage from feral animals. So it's more like a job over there. So I trust what those guys have to say about different cartridges because they are really putting them to the test. All right, here is uh, Ray from Minnesota. Hey, Ron, I always enjoy your videos and articles in the Minnesota Outdoor News. Oh, yeah, that's a great little newspaper out of Minnesota. They cover Minnesota news, hunting and fishing, and they've always got good stuff in there. A lot of local content to keep you up to date on what's going on in the state. Um, I enjoy writing for them. I just do some general purpose guns and ammo column things for them. Been doing it for years, since the 1990s. Good little bunch over there. Um, I enjoy, no, he says, there's very little information about the effectiveness of buckshot for deer hunting. Ah, it seems like the new tungsten alloy shot would be a game changer, especially in areas of shotguns only. Have you considered doing one of your analyses of buckshot ballistics? You know, I have. Um, recently, several people have been asking about this. Traditionally, buckshot has been a poor option for taking deer. And it seems kind of funny. You'd think it would be a great option, but here's the thing. The, uh, the buckshot is individual pellets. When they're all together, you've got an ounce and a half to two ounces of lead. I mean, this is a big, heavy load going down range, right? But as they disperse in the cone that a shotgun always does, then you've got problems because you're not getting all of that lead on your target animal. So here is what you have to consider. How much energy is each one of those pellets carrying and what size hole is it going to make? A shotgun pellet is not going to expand, not going to mushroom like a bullet. So the diameter of the bullet is the diameter of the hole and it's not going to be doing as much tissue damage as a bullet. So each individual buckshot is pretty tiny. Caliber size, you're looking at 22. Gosh, I don't know if they've got a 24 out there. I've got to study my buckshot because I don't that often play around with them, but they're pretty darn small. And if you go to a bigger size buckshot to get a bigger hole, then you get fewer pellets. And then the energy that each one of those carries really drops quickly because it's just not that heavy to begin with, and it does not have a high ballistics coefficient. Yeah, you're talking about some, some extreme limitations with buckshot. Now, in close, where you can keep most of that pattern on the animal, fine. But once you start extending your range, you really have to know what sort of a pattern density you're getting on that animal. That is a grand idea for a little bit of a shooting experiment. I may have to do that someday. We'll get some buckshot loads and we'll try them out. Now, your idea about using tungsten is probably darn good. Why? Because the right tungsten pellet, especially pure tungsten, is heavier than lead. 
denser. Same size projectile, heavier means it's carrying more energy downrange. So you will perform better. You'll get more penetration. You will carry more energy to the target. Not that energy makes all that much difference. It's just getting that bullet into the vitals to disrupt them and cause hemorrhaging. That's going to do the damage. But still, it's going to help. It's also going to cost a lot of money. <laughs> Tungsten is not cheap. But hey, when you figure the cost of a shell against the animal and all the money and time you've put in for that hunt, I really think spending a few more bucks on a cartridge is worth it. All right, good one. I will try to remember, Ray, to get involved on that one and do some. Uh, we'll do that on my regular channel, Ron Spomer Outdoors, Buckshot. How is it performing? We'll see if we can get some volunteer deer. Bet we can't. All right, this is AJ from Michigan. Hi, Ron. I have a Remington 7400 carbine at 30 out 6, and I'm looking for factory ammunition that will perform well out of a short 18 and a half inch barrel. Would lighter, shorter bullets stabilize better than longer, heavier ones? According to the catalog from the year the gun was made, it's a 1 in 10 twist. Thank you. Good one, AJ. This brings up uh, some of the confusion about stabilizing bullets, barrel length, and twist rates. The length of the barrel has nothing to do with the stabilizing of the bullet. It's the twist rate, and that does not require a certain inch of, of barrel. If you have a twist rate in your barrel of, say, 1 in 10, all that means is that the spiraling twist of that rifling groove, or the grooves, is completing a complete turn of the bullet in 10 inches of travel. It doesn't have to go 10 inches to get that same rate of spin to the bullet. It can only be five inches or even in a handgun, you're looking at two inch barrel and you're still getting the same twist rate, even though all of the complete twist length isn't there in your barrel. It's starting off at that twist rate. It's the rate of the twist. Makes sense? So, 18 and a half inch barrel will have nothing to do with stability. It's got a one in 10 twist and it's going to stabilize that bullet. In a 30 out six, it's going to stabilize up to a 200 grain, 210 grain, probably a 220 grain bullet. Depends on the length of the bullet. Round nose 220 grain bullet probably should have no problem stabilizing that. Go to some of the new long, long old jive and boat tail bullets and 220 grains, and that might be a little bit too long to stabilize. But that's the twist rate and the bullet length thing. That's the relationship there. You are going to lose some velocity compared to a 24-inch barrel. As a general rule, a cartridge roughly the size of a 30-06 with that powder capacity, you're probably losing around 30 feet per second for every inch of barrel you cut off. So if you've judged or measured the velocity uh, with a 24-inch barrel, which a lot of the manufacturers do, if they say that you're going to be getting 2,800 feet per second from that particular load out of a 24-inch barrel, you better start taking 30 inches off for every inch that you've gone down. So 18 and a half inch up to 24, do the math. You've lost some velocity. But you're still going to have more than enough power and energy in that bullet to do the job on deer and elk and moose and all the rest of it. You're going to be stable. Everything's going to work out just fine. If that rifle shoots well for you, if it's accurate, and if you enjoy using it, I won't worry about it, man. I would go hunting for whatever I wanted to hunt. I would match up my bullet to the game that I'm hunting. In other words, lighter bullets for thin-skinned, smaller animals, you get more velocity. Uh, heavier bullets for heavily boned animals and larger animals like elk, 
moose, some of the bigger bears. Also consider the construction of the bullet. You want a controlled expansion bullet that stays in one piece that will enhance its ability to penetrate and reach the vital organs on a larger animal. The other thing, though, that balances some of this is the need for defeating wind deflection. Even if you're shooting uh, at a fairly small uh, light-framed animal in which you'd probably want to use a lighter bullet, that shorter, lighter bullet is not going to handle wind deflection as well as a longer bullet. So think high BC. Get your ballistics coefficient up. All that does is it measures the bullet's ability to fly efficiently, get to the target faster, and not get deflected so much by the wind. High BC, least wind deflection. So hunting pronghorn, for instance, out in windy Wyoming, you probably want a bullet with high BC so the big winds out there don't blow it too far off target. So you want a heavier bullet, even though you don't need the mass and the energy to take the animal, you've got an advantage in not having that wind blow the bullet off target. Those are the things you want to consider. Um, yeah, that 7,400 carbine sound like a fun one. I'm glad you're enjoying that. Thanks for bringing it up. Uh, that looks like it for our questions today, folks. Hey, if I got any answers uh, wrong, send me a little note like out there did telling me that I'm a cowboy. You should know this stuff instead of guessing at it. And I will read yours, your note online and uh, straighten things out because we always try to get everything as right as we can on these podcasts. So until next time, I will await your comments and corrections and we'll see you then. This is Ron Spomer with Ron Spomer Outdoors signing off. Hunt honest and shoot straight.